Welcome to the Evolution Exchange podcast. I'm James Price. I'm your host for today. I connect businesses with talented cyber professionals in the cybersecurity market. We bring together the best technical leaders to discuss industry passions, challenges, and ideas. I'm joined today by a fantastic panel to talk about the art of penetration testing, the techniques, tools, and best practices. Before we get into the discussion, let's make some introductions. So Michael, would you like to introduce yourself first? Hey James, thanks. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Michael Butler. I got my start with the U.S. Army. Um, I joined up just uh, because I wanted to be a soldier and uh, ended up in their new program making uh, what they eventually called uh, Cryptologic Network Warriors. Um, went to six months of training uh, down in Florida for a little bit at a class that I guess doesn't exist down there anymore, but uh, um, did pretty good. And then I came up to the NSA, did six months of training there um, and got uh, assigned as a operator. Um, conducting uh network warfare uh you know and so on i <laughs> can't get too in depth into that side of things <laughs> but i did that for a few years um and then when i left the agency i went and did some teaching for a little while uh teaching the same job i was doing before um and then i switched to the commercial side uh worked at a company called defense point security where i built and led their penetration testing team as well as several uh, other contracts um, and then when that company sold, I left for about a year to go do some development work and came back, uh, into offensive security with CH2 security, um, which was founded like five or six years ago. Um, and so I started with the founder on that and again, built and led the penetration testing team as CH2 security, uh, until we were recently acquired or I guess joined together with a few other companies into a larger company called UV Cyber, Ultraviolet Cyber. And so now I'm the uh, Vice President of Offensive Security at uh, Ultraviolet Cyber. Thanks, Michael. I'm Kurt. I am. Um, thank you for, for letting me on this podcast and say I'm excited to do these. Um, I actually was started in the FBI. I was an, an agent for um, 24 years before I retired. I spent 10 years in the military prior to that. When I was in the FBI, I had taken over a special operations unit, which did technical offensive operations. So covert um, pen, pen penetration, physical and technical, fell in love with it. They didn't like the admin, but I'll tell you what, and it was phenomenal. Then got into pen testing um, or ethical hacking. Did that after, um, after COVID, I decided to, um, I decided to, um, to retire. I was doing some pen testing, some other work uh, came over and oh, I'm an attorney. And then use the pen testing skills to um, start working with companies to actually, I, I basically assess um, different types of cybersecurity, including pen tests for um, a number of very large corporations. Um, and, and so I've been doing that and, and loving it. I also am an adjunct professor at the Quinnipiac University teaching pen tests. So I'm like not the engineer in the, in the university's engineering program. I was just a lawyer in the program who teaches pen testing. Uh, but that's a great program. I've been doing that and working with CompTIA on developing programs within that within that structure. Cheers, Kurt. And finally, Kevin. Thanks, James. Hi, everybody. Uh, Kevin Bong. I've been doing cybersecurity for about 25 years. Uh, the first 12 leading like web development, network management, risk, and cybersecurity functions for a regional bank. Uh, the last 13 plus years, it's been uh, consulting, a mix of penetration testing, incident response, uh, PCI audits, bank audits, um, mostly in leadership roles that whole time. Most recently, I was working for Sikich, uh, leading the penetration testing team, incident response team, vulnerability scanning program, um, and uh, in addition to the pen testing, doing a lot of uh, PCI payment card breach forensics, so pretty cool stuff there. Um, 
just recently I'm, I'm independent right now, but uh, about to start a pretty cool new opportunity with a, a newly starting firm. So I look forward to this talk today. As am I, Kevin. And thank you all for your introductions. Let's move on to the topic. So you all have a question on penetration testing, the art, the best tools and practices used. So I'll work around the room and ask each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. So each of you have the opportunity to give your take on it, and then we'll listen to the other people's opinion. So let's start with Michael and your question, please. Yeah. Uh, so my question is about infrastructure. Um, I think that it's one area that uh, a lot of teams do differently. I don't think there's ever been really a one-size-fits-all um, so I really wanted to dive in and see what different perspectives on infrastructure are and uh, uh, kind of present what we've, what my team has uh, kind of eventually worked out. Uh, so my question is, what infrastructure have you seen be the most successful for sort of general pen testing and red teaming activities? Um, and then more specifically, if we have time for it, uh, like what infrastructure have you looked at for phishing and mobile applications specifically? You know, I, I was, that's an awesome question because it, in if I'm if I'm doing um, if I'm actually doing one type of pen test or another, the most the most important thing which may have bared out today is that you that companies take a lot of time to have pen tests. They actually um, they actually schedule them out. They get the infrastructure and then to find out that um, you know a solo pen tester or a small company doesn't have redundant systems for for power or for internet and if things get delayed or there's problems. And then all of a sudden that pen test is delayed. So you're the basics. The best thing is having to make sure that you have all the redundant systems, especially if you're starting off doing it, that you have power, you have an alternate form of cell. Because a lot of times what I find is that the, the most powerful computers aren't necessarily the um, needed. In fact, I've done a lot of work off of disposable laptops. But the, the fact is that you, if, if a company is taking the time and effort to have that schedule, they, got, they have to make sure that the pen test can actually get in there and do it properly and be professional about it because this industry has a lot of different varieties of people that do pen testing some very large others that are small and but as a small pen tester you can look five times larger by making sure that you have the basics and i, I always laugh, laugh if you have a great cover sheet and you present yourself well with you know you have the you have you have the physical space and or um, to actually do a nice um, video video presentation and also you know you're not being hampered by things like power or be or, or other issues that are, are really a problem a lot of times it's amazing I just had my power go off about 30 minutes ago and it, it matters so I think that's big the other thing is with applications with infrastructure with pen tests and I, and I look at a lot of pen tests I evaluate the applications matter. And, and, and a lot of different pen testers, um, I know they talk down script kiddies and yada, yada, yada. But the fact is there are a lot of great applications out there that are free, that are commercial, and that should be used because the fact is the threat actors are using those applications. So if you can identify, you, know, you use the same, the, the same applications that the threat actors are using, you know, those, those applications, those assets are hugely important. And I think, so I think there's, um, those are the basics. No, thanks, James. Yeah, there's there's so much that can be said about the the infrastructure. I think Kurt hit a lot of the key points there. Kind of from a foundation, most people I see are just you know for the external testing, spinning up cloud services, Linux machines, Kali Linux. Um, the, most of the tools you want to use are open source, freely available, at least. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. Um, I've seen some very nice and used some very nice like internal pen testing frameworks. Or if you're not doing the kind of get your own command and control, but trying to, you know, kind of demonstrate or, or simulate a foothold, 
um, kind of building uh, a Kali box that calls home to a VPN that you can remote into that has the tools you need. Um, the only kind of commercial thing, in my opinion, that you kind of need for the network testing is a commercial scanner. It's hard for me to justify doing a, a paid-for scan for a client and, and trying to use just free scanners that aren't going to be as good as something like Nessus or Qualys or something like that. But beyond that, as Kurt said, you're going to use the tools that the the hackers are using, and they're using the free ones, or they're using cracked versions of uh, uh, Cobalt Strike or something like that. Which um, there's there's free things that can simulate a lot of that stuff too. So, uh, Kurt, uh, do you feel like uh, cloud environments kind of address a lot of your concerns about the redundancy, or do you think that that's not good enough? I I they, you know they do. In fact, I the cloud environment adds a whole is a whole new aspect for looking good, but. And you and the be, the best part is actually mirroring them, spinning things up as you can. That's phenomenal. But again, how many times have I mean the company? Again, it's, you have to look at the, the the actual consumer. That the consumer, the companies are paying a lot of money and uh, and putting a lot of assets and resources to doing these projects. And and any pen tester, whether they're a massive firm or even more more likely the smaller firms, they want to look like they want to look like the professional. They want to look like they can produce those. Those outstanding, uh, you know, uh, you know, pen tests, and then produce, you know, products that are super professional. And that again, it's 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 the simple things that trip people up. I mean, I, you know, you think about it. Yeah, we have all this online, but if you're if something happens and your system goes down, or people are working out of their homes, which how many pen testers do that now? And all of a sudden, you find out that there's you know power going out for one, or people don't have connections. That stuff matters because a lot of times, if you have a massive company that is that has you know how many people could be out be you know the blue teaming and you know working with pen testers um they're they're spending the resources so you want to make sure you give them that quality and it boy does it make you look good that's the other you know the companies that could do it well i mean they that that is what matters and and, and it would and a lot of companies do it well but don't necessarily look present themselves as well as they do it and i think that's important and you not only do it well but you present yourself well and then your product is superb. Yep, that that makes sense. Um, yeah, I, my team moved uh, pretty much. Uh, we started off on on laptops and doing testing from like VMs on laptops. But a few years ago, we moved to AWS pretty much exclusively to avoid a lot of the outages stuff. But then also, um, not that AWS doesn't have outages as well, I suppose. But yesterday, uh, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <yep>. um, <laughs> uh, and then also uh, the liability of having all those laptops out there with customer data on it. I, I I set a goal to my team and to my technical lead. I was like, I want uh, to hear someday that one of my testers lost their laptop at the airport and not care about it because there's nothing important on it. Um, and so we moved to kind of that model. Um, and and uh, I'm fortunate enough to have a few developers on my team that built up this infrastructure as code thing using Terraform and Packer and Ansible to co- code everything out and deploy things uh, from Slack integrations. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm able to have at least the, the redundancy of AWS um, and not worry about the liability of laptops. <laughs> yeah, Michael, I think that that security, the security aspect is a real challenge. You know, it's cool that you guys are automating kind of that deployment process. It feels like you either have to make a decision, is your pen testing environment managed by the company in which case you kind of maybe end up tying the hands of the pen testers a bit that they want to install some new tool or build some custom malware and maybe there's something to get in the way of that. Or do you let the employees kind of have free reign on what they're going to build? 
but then you're trusting them not only to be good hackers, but also be good defenders and put all the security things in place and not open up the wrong services or, or things like that. It, it's, it's a tough balance. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, it's, it's especially in the highly regulated, regulated industries, because if you, what, I mean, it, you know, again, you have to look at, you have to look at that whole chain, that whole process that the company has going and AWS, I mean, AWS is, is, is phenomenal. Again, the cloud just brings so much more to it. But again, you have your employees, your company has to be able to to project that um that that image. I'm also what I'm what I'm amazed at with the infrastructure and the assets is whether companies actually or pen testers actually record all of their all the the sequences of their attacks. That I have seen a bunch of mid level companies that have gotten in tr- trouble, and then the pen testing company can't actually explain what happened that caused some some outages within the company because they were not recording. The attacks. I'm just wondering what you do, what do you got what do you do with that? Do you actually record um, automatically the sequence the sequences of the attack, or do you just record it manually? I think that's hard as well because um, it's going to depend mostly on your tooling whether or not you're able to uh, uh, record things, and then also sort of your position in the test. If you're doing like web app testing, right, and you're using something like Burp Suite, well then everything should be pretty much recorded, and you just have to make sure that the state files are maintained and stuff like that. Um, but if you're doing like something like an internal pen test and you're supposed to be stealthy and quiet and not get caught, it's hard to also bring something to record everything unless you're doing something like screen recording uh, and just, you know, recording all of the operator's actions, which is something my team's considered. We're not doing that right now. Um, but but honestly, I think that might be uh, a good step for a lot of pen testing teams uh, who are trying to avoid, you know, liability and, and questions over what exactly they did. So if I gave one for your input on that first question there for Michael. So let's move on to your question next, please, Kurt. And this goes to um, really the customer centric. Um, you know, are pen testers requesting um, post pen, pen, pen test work and activity um, to provide guidance on how to actually mitigate the vulnerabilities that are identified? And also, are you as a pen tester actually advertising that post work as you know to monetize some that the potential that that may be out there to get additional work off the same customer? Yeah. So so. Um, in my role, most recent uh, role at Sikich, um, a lot of our pen testing was PCI based. And the PCI framework says not only do you have to pen test, but you have to remediate before you're kind of, you know, assessed compliant. And in driving that, it actually drove all our pen tests where our pen test contracts had, we would pen test, we would give you a draft report, you would have 30 days to remediate. And we actually built in a small budget for remediation guidance and assistance. And then we reserved like two hours for retesting. So at the end of the remediation, it was already baked in. We would retest. We'd tell you if it was actually fixed. And then we'd give you a final report. Um, and that worked really well. It kind of, as you said, drove the clients not just to take the report and put it on a shelf, but we built into the project that you've got 30 days. And we were fluffy with that. You know, if they're like, okay, well, that's a that's an application that has two-week sprints that we can't get into a sprint for 30 days. So, uh, you know, give us 60, 90 days on that or things like that. Um, but yeah, it worked pretty well, um, to, as you said, stay involved after delivering the report and give that benefit of, of remediation guidance. Um, clients did try to drag us in at times to like fix it for them. Uh, Hey, we, we can't, we can't, we can't get this LMNR to stop broadcasting on our network. You know, here, I'll give you domain ending credits. And we tried to stay away from that because we're, we're assessing after the fact, whether it's fixed. So we can't really be the ones to fix it as well. Yeah. So, um, I I totally agree. And at any time any client asks me or one of my uh, team members to fix something that we found, my response is always, we're the hackers. You don't want us fixing your network. I don't know your network as well as you do, and I'm probably not going to do a very good job with it. 
Um, you let us know when you fix it and we'll come back and take a look. Um, but yeah, I, I think we have a pretty similar approach to uh, what Kevin was talking about. Um, you know, remediation is very important. I think most clients uh, at least want it. Many of them require it because they have different auditors or whatever that need uh, an updated report showing that the different original findings have been remediated before they'll sign off on whatever uh, certification the client is going for. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. So when it, when it comes to doing remedi uh, remediation, um, we uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of different clients about uh, you know remediation after the fact. And one thing I'm always surprised about is that they're surprised we're not going to charge them for it. They're like, oh, my, my previous uh, pen testing company they charge us an additional amount. What's it going to cost, right? Or they'll come back 90 days later or whatever, like, oh, it's been too long. What's it going to cost for it? It's like, no, we'll do it. It's, you know, like Kevin mentioned, it's two hours. You know, sometimes it's a little longer than that. Worst case scenario, it might be a day of testing. It's really not that big of a deal. Um, and so I guess I'm, I'm rather surprised that a lot of different companies out there will charge additional amounts because um, it, it's, it's a very small piece. You're not making a whole lot of money off of that, but you are kind of setting that bad taste in your client's mouth and then they're going to consider that when they come back the following year. Um, and they're going to come to somebody like me who says, oh, we won't charge you for that. It's totally fine. Um, and yeah, we try to be very flexible with them. Uh, you know, by the paperwork, it's like 30 or 60 days for radiation. But I've done radiation six months after the fact, you know, because we want them to come back and to trust us and to, and to work with us. Um, I think, uh, yeah, another part of I think that question is, you know, do we uh, we're writing up the reports? You know, do we make recommendations? We do the best we can to make recommendations on how we think. Uh, some of the findings we've identified can be fixed. Um, but yeah, but at the end of the day, not my network, not something I want to get you know too involved in. And especially like uh, Kevin mentioned, uh, if we're going to be the ones assessing it, we don't want to be the ones fixing it. How much do they actually come, the companies come back and haven't remediated anything in the 30 days? Does that happen quite often or no? I would say not always, but at least 80% of my clients want, uh, oh, in 30 days, probably a little bit less, maybe 40% come back in 30 days. But uh, 60, 90 days, I'd say up to 80% of my clients um, want that report that says remediated, checking off every single one of the findings. Nice. Yeah, we, we, we find a lot. If we don't get to 80% checking off all, um, they often check off some, but some that they're like, oh, these are too hard to fix. Michael, I'm curious your, your experience with things that are hard to retest. You know, you've got a five-step attack chain. And if you, if you can only get through the first step on during retesting, how do you check the, the next four things that they actually change this password, they actually patch this system, things like that? You mean like uh, it's a vulnerability that allowed internal access and they patched the one that allowed the access, but there's still vulnerabilities past that point? Is that the case? Yeah, we saw we saw missing patches. We saw we used a weak password and that was yeah. after we got through their VPN. Well, now they fixed their VPN, but... Yeah. So, I mean, we'll let them know, like, uh, we cannot modify this finding unless we have evidence and we'll try to be as helpful as we can with that. Like if you can give me uh, screenshots or documentation of an updated configuration from your side, we can work with that. If you want to give me access in some other method, like that's totally fine. Um, but I can't update something without seeing it and being able to verify it. Cause that's our name. Yeah. That's so, yeah, that's, that's my experience as well. Pen testers don't like it cause they complain that you're turning into an auditor asking for audit evidence, but it's what you got to do to kind of yep. be able to mark this remediated, mark this fixed. Yep. And satisfy the the consumer's um, regulatory requirements. Yeah. 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 And I think it's one of those things where you can kind of have uh, junior members of the team work on it uh, because uh, if your report is thorough enough in the steps to how you triggered the vulnerability, then anyone who's at least somewhat familiar with the tool set should be able to come back in, trigger the vulnerability or validate that it's been remediated. 
So thank you everyone for your input once more on to Kurt's question. Our final question on today's episode comes from Kevin. So Kevin, if you'd like to tell the listeners and apologize your question, please. Yeah, thanks, Shane. Yeah. My, my, my question is around what is what are some best practices around post-exploitation? And by that, I mean, you know, you have a pen tester, have gained a foothold, you've established command and control, probably got domain admin. Um, you kind of know that the right answer is not to just stop. A lot of people just stop once they've got domain admin. But you also know what I've heard it called punch the punch the client in the face, like show off how how what you've done or <laughs> caused them problems. Um, show, show them things are obvious. Like what what does work well for post exploitation to give that client client some extra value beyond just yeah I was able to get DA. Um, yeah, so I think that this is uh, this is a really good question because um, it kind of questions the direction that a lot of pin testers are brought up, right? And all of the different training classes, Sans, Black Hat, whatever, it's always go get the DA, right? Um, but I think that, uh, the answer to this question really starts early on in like the, uh, sales meetings where you're getting the client's goals and you start trying to understand what really matters to them because DA matters to the pen tester. It may not matter to the client. Uh, for example, if you're dealing with, um, you know, banking or investment firms, they're going to care if you can get access to what is the system called uh, swift. I think it is yes. right. Yeah. Those networks, like they're, that's what they care about. If you're dealing with, um, uh, electric companies, they're going to care if you can get to their SCADA network, right? You get DA, that doesn't really necessarily mean that you check the part that mattered most. Um, so I think that this uh, really starts with early on identifying what matters most to the clients and then communicating that to the tester. Um, one thing that I found has really, really helped with, with you know, maintaining uh, the correct focus, which is the client's objectives throughout the tests, is having consistent communication with the client. Uh, and what I've done, which might seem a little risky... <laughs> is uh, we have sort of shared chat channels with our clients. Um, if, they're, if they're technical enough, if they're interested, um, where they can talk directly to the pen tester as they're going through the engagement. And the pen tester will give them daily updates on this is what I'm trying, this is what I tried yesterday, uh, all that kind of stuff. This is what I'm going to try today. And the client can say, I'm not really interested in that. I want you to focus on this instead and kind of help direct things. So they aren't just at the end, you know, given a report and not really sure the steps that contributed to that report. And maybe that report is on, I uh, mean, the report's full of ways that they got DA, but the client's like, I'm not really that interested. My DA environment is kind of isolated and not that impactful to my business as, as a whole and not what I needed to show my auditors. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, the answer is early on and continuous communication with the client, making sure that you're targeting uh, what they are interested in. Um, and then another thing uh, early on, I think that we identify with the clients is, are they more interested in sort of the stealth slash red teaming aspect of things or the identifying vulnerabilities and exploitation, you know, pen testing side of things? Um, and the way I try to talk to clients about it is it's sort of a slider, right? You have a block of time. Let's say you've got three weeks on a network and it's like, do you want me to be more stealthy or do you want me to get more findings? <laughs> because stealth means slower, but it, it helps you test more, uh, it, it tests your detection and response capabilities. Um, and then, you know, the pen testing aspect detects or, uh, attempts to identify vulnerabilities and exploit them. Um, so yeah, I think really those two questions, how do you want me to approach this test, red team versus pen testing? And what are your goals? Uh, you know, upfront and then sort of throughout the engagement because they can adjust with time. You know, you you mentioned something that was the biggest mistake I ever made in the cybersecurity, and that goes punching a client in the face. I actually had a meet. I had a meeting with a with a phenomenal company, and regarding the cybersecurity, what was going on, and they and there were evidently the engineers were saying about talking about just a flawless test they were doing, and the fact there were so many vulnerabilities and the cybersecurity team was actually beating them up over you got to fix this got to fix this and then i didn't know this at the time i, wa I walked in we had talked and they talked about all the the 
people in the building. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of them that are false positives. You just got to understand. You got to really track what you have because sometimes you'll hit a ton of false positives that you'll, you're just not going to be able to remediate. And no one ever knew that. And then all of a sudden, literally, this team started into a fist fight between the engineers and the team because they didn't know about false positives. And I'm like, I will never do that again. I mean, the, and, and that goes to the thing when you're doing a pen test, and, and I'm talking to whoever is out there listening who starts off, you must compliment the security team because you have all the advantages. This team has to function in the real world. They're keeping their business alive, and then they're having some people that are not they're up to bad things tampering with their with their infrastructure. And no matter what, even if you if you get access, and I've and right now sometimes it's very hard to get access um, as pure the the perfect pure just pen test from the external side. That team is working on uh, de- defending a million different things. So you yeah we find one issue, but they may have defended against the and definitely, but we found that one IP address that was sitting out there that just never they know existed. And then you're then you're into you're into their IoT, then you're into their system, and that's not fair. And I uh, tell them this: you, the, all those guys have to have jobs when you leave. So just saying you suck and we have a nice day after you after you bury their system really is unfair. Um, and I I will never do that again because it's such a hard job defending these systems, and um and we we we, pro- we provide one snapshot in time. That's it, one snapshot. Meanwhile, they're and they're going to you know keep going and keep functioning every other time. So, you know, learn from my mistake. Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Like, um, having transitioned kind of from the pen test to the incident response function, um, one of the interesting things that, that kind of came to me was um, the stuff that I was seeing in terms of IR, what we were researching back guys were doing, I wasn't really seeing many pen testers doing in, as mm. part of like post-exploitation. Um, you know, we were working so many ransomware cases where the attackers were going and deleting, you know, accessing and deleting backups. And I couldn't think of a single pen test where my pen testers had demonstrated like, hey, I just got to your backup server. I could delete these backups, like make that as a goal of the pen test um, or for like e-commerce, like so much of the, the card, the card breaches today are, are like uh, obfuscated card skimming malware, like hidden as JavaScript on the web server. And, you know, people go look for credit cards on the web server, things like that, but never take it as far as, hey, look, demonstrate, I could add some JavaScript to your web app here and be scraping cards. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, the threat emulation, do you get a lot of companies to ask you to pen test one specific issue? Yeah, you'll you'll definitely have them like, it's important for us to test this new app or this this one interface or something like that. Yeah. How about one threat, one vector? Have you seen that? Um, you know, we're actually starting to look at um, going down more of that scenario-based testing path, path where instead of saying, hey, we're doing an extra test, we're just going to be all year outside, let's do a mitered attack scenario t- test saying, hey, you're worried about this APT threat group. This is their common technique path. Um, and let's try that technique path against your organization. Yeah, I think I've only seen that when it's like uh, an organization's been hit by a specific uh, actor and they're like, we think we fixed this why don't you try before they do? <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty rare. And it, and it usually comes after uh, they've had a bad time. In, 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 um, t- in Quinnipiac, in, teach- in teaching this, that's so important because forget about the um, pen testing, but anybody in law enforcement that's working this, being able to actually figure out how to how to, how to to attack a system means you have to, the threat emulation is key to understanding how to actually get a proper vector and I, it's it's amazing how many people really it's it, they really struggle with it and don't understand the meter, haven't really gone through the process of actually 
you know, you know, focusing how a specific attack works. I mean, they could do they could do some the basic stuff, but not you know, emulating that specific thing is is really a, a nice um, a night a nice skill to have. Yeah, so I think that that might be uh, a, maybe a little bit more technical, honestly. Um, but honestly, I brought this up because my team struggled with this pretty significantly. Um, last year, coming to this year, we kind of realized, you know, that our mobile techniques and platform, uh, just our approach to testing was a little outdated. We had to put some serious work into this year. And I think I'm, I'm pretty proud with where we got at this point, but I was just curious because I don't see a whole lot of, uh, information and I see almost no training on mobile app testing. Uh, and, uh, it just seems to be kind of a quiet part of the industry. So I'm just kind of wondering what is everybody else up to? Like we figured out our own thing, um, which I'll, I'll gladly talk about, but I, I wanted to hear from you guys. What have you seen or what are you working with? So Michael, I, I'm, I'm anxious to hear what you guys did. I'll kind of share what our struggles have been because it's probably the same as your struggle and might give the rest of the listeners what that is. So uh, certainly on the Android side, you've got some opportunities there. You can use Android Studio and Frida and things like that. Uh, where you get stuck is a lot of the development frameworks nowadays come with kind of built-in anti-root protections and things like that. So so you're kind of at a first level of hey, give me your give me your app, and I can tell you if if it's got good root protections and if I can bypass certificate pinning. And if I can't do those things, if those things are in place, that's about as far as I can go. Unless you client want to give me a second copy of your app that has those features disabled, and then I can do some more pen testing with you know decoding the API protocols and things like that. Um, it's kind of the same from my perspective on the iOS side, except that it's so much harder to get a workable jailbroken environment. Uh, it's kind of like you have to find an old phone that has an old iOS version that somebody can at least unlock that you can then jailbreak. And even then your capability is not as good. And I've heard the cloud, I haven't used the cloud emulators for iOS myself, but I've heard they're limiting as well. So I'm really curious to see what your experience has been. Yeah. So um, yeah, what you're describing is exactly what, you, what we ran into. And uh, in December of last year, uh, most of my team was out and I was like, okay, I know a little, about, little bit about mobile testing. I'm going to give it a shot uh, using the documentation. My team's very good about documentation. So I'm going to give it a shot. I got like a Google Pixel and all of that and tried to go through it. Um, and yeah, the, the root protections, it was not the good app, not a good app for me to try by myself, my team at, um, and, uh, yeah, the root protections got me. Um, and then the iOS, you know, was an encrypted, uh, file with cert pinning and root detection, all that stuff, uh, uh, there, I did not get very far with it. Um, I think it's the first time that I had a client upset with me and it was, it was a bad experience. I was like, oh man, this does not happen very often. This is not great. Uh, <laughs> with me personally. Um, and, uh. Yeah, so I went back to the team. I was like, hey, what can we do about this? Because, you know, with iOS uh, world, like you mentioned, uh, that is the harder one because we've been depending on uh, rooting devices. And at this point, it's been many generations since we've had uh, the kind of exploit we could rely on um, to, to get rooted devices. And so we're working with, uh, I forget what the number is, but we're, you know, we're several versions out of date. And at this point, the applications we're trying to test won't run on those uh, older uh, operating systems. Um even if we're able to get one that we can root. Uh, so the answer that I've found is kind of two parts. You have to have this uncomfortable situation with the client where you say, I can't pull it from the store. You have to give it to me. You have to give me a dev build that you can give me one with those protections enabled. I will verify that they're enabled. They're going to be there probably. And then you have to give me one with it disabled that I can actually work with. Um, so like that's, that's the first thing I have to do, which is, is uncomfortable a little bit because a lot of clients are used to just saying, go pull it from the store. I've been doing that for years, go pull it from the store. Um, and you're like, I, I can't do that. I can't do the kind of test you want me to do if I just pull it from the store. 
Um, and the second part of it was we use, and I'm not <laughs> sponsoring them or anything, but we use uh, uh, an online service called Carillion, which is kind of like the cloud thing, right? Where you're there virtualizing phones. Um, and so you're able to get the uh, uh, IPA or whatever from the client, uh, install it onto one of their virtualized phone, uh, uh, vir- yeah, virtualized phone environments, and they kind of go from there. Um, so that's been our response to it, uh, and that has allowed us so far to continue doing really in-depth and good uh, pen tests of mobile apps. But yeah, it's I think the industry right now is a little uh, in kind of an uncomfortable place with that because we have to ask the clients to help us out a little bit. I have to tell you, I haven't seen as far as any reports and documentation regarding phone phone attacks. I haven't seen much at all. I mean, I don't I don't see anyone really going out there saying, "Hey, look all the great work we're doing." Most of the people are just ignoring the whole. That whole vector, um, and you know, rightfully so. I mean, it, it really, if you want to get into that, those attacks, there are methodologies out there. Some of them are, are you know, are, are short in time and they're very expensive. And I mean, they're hyper expensive to be able to to to, to actually get the um, the applications that will successfully um, successfully attack a modern phone. I mean, I I actually funny. I actually think if you ask a lot of companies whether their phones are encrypted or not, the companies can't actually tell you. I mean, that's they're they're their some their un- understanding of their own phone assets, those mobile assets are um, li- are limited, and that that may be even the bigger problem um, that that the companies have as far as being able to describe how their assets are set up, um, you know, with in, in, in the vector because the, they the companies don't have um, a good handle on a lot of a lot of those assets. So you're not alone. <laughs> but I think you know part of Michael talked about just the environment we're in. Um, when you look at the iOS platform. Like also, as you said, Kirk, the, the attack surface people, there aren't a lot of compromises and breaches for iOS devices because of the sandboxing, because of the the fact that you can only deploy apps through the Play Store and it's so hard to jailbreak devices and things like that. You know, to some extent, um, it feels like if you confirm that the jailbreak protections are in place and if you confirm that uh, SSL p- cert pinning is in place, um, then you spend your time testing the API, which you don't need to you know, actually do that from the phone. If they'll give you the API instructions and a key and things like that, you can do the full testing of the most important cr- things or the most critical threat actor uh, avenues uh, without actually spending two days trying to tweak the application on a jailbreak and phone. Yeah, well, it, it, working with the government, I'm always amazed how the process was. One week, we're able the government's able to successfully hit a phone, and then a week later, like, sorry, we're done. <laughs> there, and there's like these, these lags of time in between how quick the government can actually go after a phone successfully versus the patches that are put in versus going back and finding another vector and all the different commercial platforms that are out there to be able to do that, you know, when you have, when you have your physical custody of a phone. Um, it's, it's one of these things where it's, it's incredibly difficult um, to do anything with a phone. It, it, even in the real world, I mean, that's just a fact of life. When's the last time you heard of a company get wiped out because of, because of a cell phone? It's, I mean, they're all, a lot of times they're doing traditional we're still going after passwords. Yeah. I mean, the Ripper is what's killing companies, not necessarily the other, you know, not necessarily the cell phone attacks. That's that's a good point. Yeah, uh, Kevin, I'm I'm on board with with the uh, let's check these protections, make sure they're in place, and let's move on to the API. Like that that makes sense. I think it's hard uh, when there's already been uh, established requirements by different frameworks. I think that require you to go a little bit deeper, like uh, FedRAMP. We we do some subcontracting to uh, some FedRAMP work, and it's like. They want you to get in there. It's like, well, well, I can't. Well, it doesn't work. <laughs> so you better find a way to get in there. So you guys tell the clients, I need I need something that lets me get a little bit deeper in there. And Michael, you mentioned this to be a little more technical. I'm curious 
when you're going on the iOS site and asking them, hey, give me a, a version of the app with the uh, you know development version with those protections disabled, how are they delivering that to you? How are you getting it on the phone? Is that like a test flight thing? Um, I think so. I haven't done it from their side. Um, I've requested <laughs> it. Yeah. So sorry. I don't think I can give you like uh, specifically how they do it, but I, I think um, that they're able to make uh, dev builds through test flight uh, that have those protections removed. Um, but yeah, I'd have to either ask my mobile expert or one of our clients who have actually gone through it and given us the uh, the package. I mean, how, how do you actually hire? I mean, there's such a demand for pen testers now. When you go, when you go out and try to hire a, a mobile app, app expert. I mean, that must be incredibly difficult these days. So, okay, so I had this talk with James uh, before, uh, like in our intro call. Um, I don't have, and maybe I'm just lucky. Um, uh, I have a few people that work at the company. They're very connected to the community. So I, I, I'm able to use them a little bit to get more people on the team. But in general, I don't think that hiring intercessors has been very difficult. And the reason is because everybody wants to be a hacker. Um, so it's like, I understand that there's ever, uh, other areas of cyber that, uh, seem to have much more difficulty, but there's a lot of, you know, security engineers, programmers, whatever that are just like, oh man, I'd, I'd love to go get into pen testing. I'll, t- I'll take a pay cut to get into pen testing. Um, so I think that out of, uh, the cyber fields in general, the computer science fields in general, we probably have it a little bit easier on this side, or at least that's, that's been my experience. Like I said, maybe I'm just getting lucky. Um, but, uh, it, it hasn't been that difficult. Um, I will say that for the mobile guy, I was looking for a few months or, uh, kind of the two areas that I feel like are really missing from the penetration testing field, which are mobile and cloud. I was looking for those two skill sets for a few months, um, and not finding anybody. So I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to find somebody that I can train up. That's really got to go get her attitude and all that kind of stuff, um, in those two categories. And that's what I ended up doing. And I brought on two guys and I, uh, I got lucky enough that they are very, very motivated. And one of them spun up on mobile very very quickly and he just absolutely destroys it now he figured out all the Krillian stuff and all, all the things that we needed uh to get the testing in a better place than it was last year and then the other guy spun up very quickly on cloud but clouds cloud's pretty big so he's still working through that a little bit but but yeah so i guess training him myself has worked out pretty well um but i'm still able to get a good amount of resumes uh, resumes in my experience so thank you for that question kurt and thank you all for your contribution to this podcast so before uh, we end. I'd uh, like to give another thanks to you all for coming on and sharing your thoughts in today's conversation. Once again, our guests on today's podcast have been Michael, who's the Vice Pre- uh, President Penetration Testing Services at Ultraviolet Cyber. We have Kurt, who's the Lead Cybersecurity Attorney at Axiom Legal. And then finally, we have Kevin, who's a Cybersecurity Consultant. So finally, if you are hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast episode, please feel free to drop me a message. I'm James Price and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at james.price at evolutionjobs.us or visit us at evolutionjobs.com. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. Hope you can join us next time.